The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to look at this passage together. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, uh, live forever. Let your servants uh, tell your servants a dream, and, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we shall show its interpretation. Sorry, the... I don't mean to interrupt the passage. It's just funny to me. (laughs) Sorry. These guys are shaking in their boots. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is no man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The king, the, the thing that the king asks is difficult, to say the least. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because this, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with, with prudence and discretion to, to Arioch, the, uh, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's cha- captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then the Arioch's, then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we ask, what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, 
whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me, bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, and said thus to him, I have found one among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in this interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your, of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, king, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may now, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You say, O king, um, sorry, I was checking my place where we are in the story. <laughs> this is a long chapter. Everybody with me? We're still cool? All right. You say, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has, been, he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet are partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they, shall not, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in, those day, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and, in, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God 
has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and the Lord and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Here ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are going to now pray and ask for God's help to understand all that's been going on in these 49 verses. God, what's, God, we ask for you, O oh great God, who knows mysteries, to help us understand this passage to see its value, to experience its goodness, to not get caught up in all the intricacies of every verse and every detail, but Lord, to see in this, this passage that you not only see us and know us, but you rule over all of time and history, and you care about our place in it. So we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, how do we begin to understand this passage? Here's what I want to do. I want to ask us a question at the beginning of this to kind of get us calibrated to this passage. What is the value? What is the meaning of history? What is history, right? There, there are a lot of events that happen. There are things that happen, places and people and dates and all that stuff. But history ultimately ends up becoming this thing that is actually an interpretation. It's the meaning of events, right? Events happen, right? I punch Jay in the face. The meaning of that is that uh, Jay stole my weight set or something. <laughs> I don't know. There's something behind that, right? There is something going on that gives the meaning of, it, of an act. That is what history is. And history, not just merely singular acts of what happens in life, but the whole scope of what history is. It's certainly a big term these days and how uh, the major events of our times are discussed. So. I did a little bit of some history work with uh, Google. We can throw this slide up. Have you ever heard the phrase, the right side of history? Right, that's, that phrase gets used a lot more these days. Or the wrong side of history. Or to maybe use a little bit more kind of uh, humble version of that, history is on our side. Um, this is a phrase, there, there's lots of different iterations of it, right? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. would talk about the arc of history, right? So there's kind of iterations of this. But you'll notice that, um, the right side of history, the wrong side of history, and the history is on our side. Um, in terms of the literature, like books published, articles written, etc., Google tags this phrase as having an increasing usage in the last 30 years, right? I, I didn't go into too much detail on this, but you could almost begin to kind of, when you see political turmoil, whether it's, I don't know, the, the market crash of the late 80s, or the presidential campaigns that mark every four years, but certainly it took a, a charge straight up in terms of the right side of history, wrong side of history, that usage especially, um, around the Bush era and then around when Obama came into play. Obama was famous for using this phrase. And this is not a political commentary on either of them, but just to say it's used a lot these days to kind of be like, whatever the events of today are, I'm on the right side of that event. My version of this event is the right side. We win, 
that's the way the phrase is used, isn't it? Right? Or you're on the wrong side of the event. You're on the wrong side of this this uh, this meaning, and you are going to be left in the annals of footnotes in the history books saying, "Well, there were these all these people, these pesky people that were on the wrong side of this version." But here's how this situation went. Right? You see this with Supreme Court cases. You see this with presidential elections. All that to say, we live in the air of a day where people are trying to find their place in the moments and the events of the day. They're trying to, we're trying to find where do we fit in the matrix of all that's going on. And so when we use the phrase, right side of history, wrong side of history, we're trying to find our place amidst everything that's going on. That's really what's going on. We are trying to find what is my place, what is, what is, um, what am I here for, and what value do I bring to the way history is going to play out? Am I going to be on the right side of this, and yay, we win? Or am I going to be on the wrong side of this, and like, bummer, we lost? Nebuchadnezzar was wrestling with the very same question, right? You see this here, verse 1 of chapter 2. <laughs> In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Have you ever been wrestling with these big thoughts, these big questions in life? How did I get here? Where is this going? What's the meaning of my life? How do I change from here? What's my legacy? That's the type of questions, if you're, if you're ever wondering, like, you're scrolling through uh, Facebook at 2 o'clock in the morning or continuing to Netflix binge at 3 a.m., those are the type of questions. Had Nebuchadnezzar had you know, Netflix and Wi-Fi, certainly he would have been binge-watching at 3 a.m. with these sort of questions in the background of his mind. What am I here for? What is my legacy? He's just two years into his campaign and as king, and he's wondering what the history books will be writing about him. This guy, just to put this in kind of uh, a framework, this guy is a diva of all kings, right? This guy is a diva. Like, he is wondering, not only am I, like, smooth and smart and powerful, but he's also wondering, like, how's the show going to go over? Are people going to remember this? So when we get into this chapter, the history, like, what is a history here for? What does it mean? That's kind of like the presenting issue of how we get into this passage. And so when Daniel enters into the story, Daniel enters into the story engaging with a king who is wondering, what's my place in all this? How do I fit into this? And because we're talking about a king and not just like Jacob, pastor of a church in Manchester, New Hampshire, just a regular old guy. We're talking about a king who's over a whole kingdom. We are now engaging with kingdoms and histories. We're talking about the 30,000-foot big view of history, right? And here comes Daniel into the story, and he engages with these questions because Nebuchadnezzar, just like any other, any good diva, he ain't got no time for no games, right? We got to know the exact answer, and I ain't got time for none of your mess, so Daniel comes in the picture, and here's what Daniel begins to uncover for Nebuchadnezzar. God, not Nebuchadnezzar, God is the king of history. God controls all things. He is the king of history. And so here's what we're going to say, right? What the point of history is, whether we win or lose, determines where our hope lands, right? Because that the whole question of how we're trying to, like, what's not, what am I here for? What am I doing? Right? It's trying to figure out, do I just kind of lose and do I sink into despair and life is meaningless, or do I have a place that I'm going and it's the right side of history? So that's why in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar's emotions go from being despairing, in some sense, a hope, because he understands 
God has us under control and it's going somewhere. And so the payoff of this passage for us is that because God is the king of history, we hope in the power of God's kingdom, right? We're going to see this as we kind of engage all the different stories, fences going on. Hope in the power of God's kingdom. That's kind of like the main, what do we walk away from? All right, amidst all the turmoil of everything going on today, um, I think we can all say that there's a lot going on. How do we find hope amidst the anxiety, amidst the despair, amidst all the turmoil, all the stuff going on? We find hope not in the power of a political system, not in the power of an economy, not in the power of community. We find hope in the power of God's kingdom. So we're going to break this down. This passage is going to help us kind of understand how do we have hope in God's kingdom power? How does our hope function? What does that look like for our lives right now? A hope that withstands the fall of any human kingdom, any human power, politics included, uh, including should we have a political meltdown, let's say in the next 90 days. (laughs) A hope that survives those sort of dynamics, whatever goes on. A hope that sustains and that it is sustained in the power of God's kingdom. All right. So we're going to start back at the beginning of verse one. You guys with me? All right. Verse one, hope with compassion. How do we have power, hope that, that, that is rooted in the power of God's kingdom? Well, we hope with compassion. So we just read all of this. I'm going to kind of give us a summary, and then we're going to land on a specific verse. All right. Is that cool with you guys? We're going to kind of, it's a big narrative. It just took us 10 minutes to read the whole 49 verses. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar has all these wacky dreams, and he's kind of like, all right, look, these things mean something. They're serious and important. I've got to figure out what they are all about. So let me call together all of my, like, psychologists, all of my pastors, all of the people who serve in the temple of our gods, who reveal mysteries, who understand this stuff. Let's get them here, and they're going to prove to me that they know what they're talking about, and let's dig into this. So he says, all right, everybody come before me. Tell me what my dream is. Tell me what it means. You kind of picked up as we're reading through this. These guys are like, you want me to read your mind? Um, so can you give me a little bit of something to go off of here? We're not superstitious, but to quote Michael Scott, we're, we're kind of stitious, and we need a little bit of something to go off of here. What's going on? What am I telling you about? What is, tell me, just give me just a little bit. It's, um, it would be like, should somebody have an argument with their spouse? and you don't really know what the problem is, <laughs> and you're kind of like, can you just give me something? Just give me a little bit to talk about. All right, here we have, they're being called to the test. And just as a quick note, you see that here in verse four, and the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, then begins the book, the rest of the book is in Aramaic, if I remember correctly. There, the book is in Hebrew up to this point, and then it transitions over to Aramaic almost as though the message that begins in this chapter is of such importance that it must be in the common language of the day, right? Jesus spoke Aramaic, right? Aramaic is the dominant language of the day. It's almost as though it went from being kind of like the subgroup's language to whatever the meaning of these these dreams are, they are important for all people in all times and all places. This is for everybody. So the meaning, what what we get to here, verse 12, right? So these guys are being called to the shot, and the king's like, look, if you guys can't do your job, because all they're really good for is textbook answers, they're like, uh, if you just give us two plus two, we'll tell you that it's four, right? They're only good for textbook answers, and he's like, not good enough. So pick up here with me, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all these wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Man, that's, 
really bad job review. <laughs> I mean, you can always be grateful that whatever your job performance review is, it doesn't end with death at the end of it, right? So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Antioch and, and the captain of the king's guard, and had to go out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? So let's stop here. You see what's happening here is Daniel's in a position where certainly he could be killed for this whole debacle, right? Of course, he's not like a wizard or a sorcerer or anything like that, but he's just kind of like lump sum. You're one of those people that's supposed to know stuff, and you guys are going to all die. But Daniel puts his neck on the line, and he says, pause. I can figure that. Let me figure this out for you. Let me step in the way of this death sentence for these other people let me step in the way and get in the way of this death sentence so that they can have a reprieve, we can get some answers, and that there will be some clarity, right? Daniel, in a certain sense, I'm seeing in this, he shows compassion because in a certain sense, he, in terms of kind of the biblical narrative, he could have just been kind of like, hey, pause, let me figure this out for me and my buddies. Instead, he, he says, he steps in the way and says, let me figure this out for me and everybody else here, right? It's very different from what you see in uh, the story of Elijah, right? There's a story of Elijah. We can throw this up there. Is it chapter, Second uh, uh, Kings, uh, Elijah, First Kings, sorry, First Kings 18. This is a famous story where, very similar, um, the, the prophets of Baal were being put to the, where they were taking over the kingdom of Israel. The king was like, everybody should worship Baal instead of Yahweh. And so there's this big test that happens between them. And this is um, Elijah to the king of Israel at the time. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal and the, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, right? So almost 1,000 prophets to eat, um, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered all the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. What happens, right? Big showdown. The brief story is God wins, right? Baal's guys, they don't, they're not able to get God, their, their false God's attention. God shows up. And then at the end of the story, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, right? So that's about a thousand prophets. Let none of them escape, and they seized them all. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. A thousand prophets dead because they were on the wrong side of who to worship, right? Regardless of where we we're going to land on understanding what that means, Daniel certainly had a similar situation in his hands, right? He could have seriously gained, like gotten some serious cash, some serious power by saying, you know what? Let's just do this for me and my buddies, right? Because you guys are all calling us slaves to your gods anyways. We're going to use our real God and prove that your God's not only false, but we're going to see all your guys die. Daniel doesn't do that. He knows that God's going to provide, right? <laughs> so, right, verse 16, And Daniel went in and requested the king be appointed time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Right? He's confident that his God's going to show up. Right? He's confident in God's power to help him. He's confident that God cares and knows what's going on. Daniel's hope does not lead towards a, towards a calculated, how can I win 
a calculated judge over these people who are legitimately false prophets, right? They're not just kind of like a different denomination, right? It's not like Baptist versus Presbyterians in the story, right? It's false gods versus true God. So Elijah, or I'm sorry, Daniel's posture is a compassionate mediator rather than a calculated judge. So, when we see Daniel hoping with the power of God's kingdom as a compassionate mediator, someone with compassion for those who are wrong and that he could have actually gotten an edge over, what does that mean for us today in our political, in our work, in our family environments? How do we, how do we hope with compassion? I want to throw up here Ephesians 4. This is a helpful, helpful place to go. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pause there. Do you notice the pilgrim language there? You were sealed. You were saved from one kingdom, and you're being sealed, basically being transported to another kingdom. You were sealed. You are a pilgrim in this passage. This is how pilgrims act. These are people who belong to another kingdom, who were saved from one kingdom, act. You are sealed. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who did that sealing, who sealed you for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, almost as though Daniel is forgiving these false prophets for being idiots (laughs) and showing compassion on them for being absolutely dead wrong. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, to to up the ante, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, mercy is given for failures, not a calculated judgment. Do you keep a mental file of all the ways of those around you, friends, spouse, neighbors, co-workers, political opponents, whoever, do you keep a calculated file of their wrongs? Do you keep a calculated file of how you can then cash those in, whether it's in an argument, whether it's a small jab, to where you can get a, an edge over those around you? You see, Daniel, he knows very well, right? He has been tagged as a slave to this foreign kingdom, but he still hopes with compassion in the power of God's kingdom to say, you guys are dead wrong, and Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go down in the history books for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) But still, I'm going to have compassion on you and the situation, and in the story, I'm going to have compassion on those who are literally out to kill me so that I can save the value of their lives, so that I can show mercy and compassion over judgment. His compassion... The, the compassion of Christ, which Daniel points us towards, Christ's compassion in Ephesians 4 requires what? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Compassion always requires a sacrifice. Daniel sacrifices his edge over these guys who are dead wrong in this story. He sacrifices his edge so that he can show compassion to them. Sacrifice and compassion, compassion always requires sacrifice because it means the, the death of one agenda for the flourishing, for the blessing, for the giving of a life-giving agenda to somebody else. So, have an argument, somebody is an idiot, they crash into your car. I've got an agenda now, I could win, I've got the law, I've got the insurance on my side, I can get everything 
uh, buckled up. I've got all the, the cash in my pocket. It doesn't mean you go through with all this stuff. But you can keep that stuff uh, in the background of your mind, in the files of your mind, and then throw it out in the most inconvenient places to win in an argument. Or you can sacrifice your agenda to win, to show compassion when it's needed. So, for example, maybe somebody had uh, bumped the car under somebody else's driving the car, and you can use that in the moment of saying, I'm a good driver. I'm not the one who got the bump on the car when you were driving the car. That's a small instance of a big story of what's going on here. Our current political climate is one of calculated judgment. How can I get an edge? Chaos, the current situation that we feel like we're in, always wants a calculated clarity for victory. I am very concerned that in the current climate, our compassion will wither and die for the sake of winning whatever your political agenda is. I don't really care. Whatever your political agenda, whatever your political party, whoever you're voting for, don't care. Is that going to push out the compassion that must reign in our hearts? So, ask yourself this question. How will your political engagement this year show the compassion of God's kingdom? How will your work life right now, maybe you have amidst all the chaos going on with work, with how the, the pandemic's affecting economy and work and all that stuff, it would certainly be advantageous to try to figure out your edge to maintain your place at, at your work. What will your work life engagement look like with the hope of compassion in God's kingdom over whatever political, I don't mean government political, I mean work political, whatever political edge you can get over your coworkers. What will your parenting look like with compassion for your children? What will your friendship look like? How will it be changed with compassion for your friends that seem to fill in the blank, whatever the blank is? Where will you need to die to your agenda to show compassion to others so that your hope is rooted in the true king and his power. Okay. We're only 30 minutes in. We're only in point two. You guys okay? We're, we're down. I, I can't see the heads nodding at home, but I'm just going to assume that you're cool to go. Hannah is nodding on your behalf. We're going to keep going. <laughs> okay. Next next section, 17 to 30. I promise we're going to try to drive through this uh, maybe about 10 miles over the speed limit. Hope with humility. Hope with humility is the next section. We were looking at hope with compassion, hope with humility. Okay, so here's what happens, right? Daniel goes to his buddies. He's like, guys, check it out. We need God to show up to help the king figure out what his crazy dream is and understand what it means, all right? So all it says here in verse 8, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. As any good story goes, right? The, the payoff is saved for the end, right? We don't know what's going on. So we just know that God revealed it to Daniel. We know that he has seen what God is doing. And so his response is to immediately say, God, we praise you. You will notice, again, similar to what we just looked at, right? Amidst all of the suspense, Daniel, 
Daniel is praising God for his mercy. He is praising God for his kindness. And he's not taking a victory lap, right? Daniel has just proven that all these false prophets and all their, their nonsense, mystery, you know, uh, magic eight ball, shake it up, figure out what the answer is, stuff, it's all wrong. And they could all die for it. And instead of taking a victory lap, Daniel is saying, you know what, God, this is all about you. We're grateful for what you've done here. We're grateful that you've shown us what you're doing. We're grateful that you've shown up, right? And you will note here, verse 20, blessed be the name of God. This is a callback to chapter 1, verse 2, where it talks about the Lord sending them. We looked at that last week. The Lord is with them. He has committed his kindness and mercy and grace to them. They do not deserve it. And yet, Daniel has received it. He does not presume upon God's mercy, but he responds humbly to God's merciful commitment to them. Right? So, here we have the, the song is all about God. You are the God of history. You, you, you rule over this. You own all of this. And so then Daniel goes in and he says, look, um, Atriach, I got the story. I know what's going down. Let's talk with the king. But when Daniel goes in to talk to the king, let's just kind of skip down here to verse 30. I want to I focus in on this. But as for me, talking to the king, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than, I, than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, right? Here's again a moment where Daniel could be like, bro, hey king, remember how my resume was all filled up with all these great things from being from Judah, and now I've got your five-year five education, and uh, I, I just want to bank in on that. I want you to remember, Daniel, Daniel, um, reviewer of God's mysteries on my resume. I want you to remember that. doesn't go there. His LinkedIn page does not, rem- not mention anything about this, right? Daniel goes in and says, look, this is not about me. God has chosen to reveal who he is because he's a revealing God. You don't deserve this, king. I, don't, I haven't earned this, but you, you needed to know this. God has chosen to answer But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but simply this, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel's confidence in coming to the king is only birthed by knowing that he's under the watchful care and blessing of the true king in the situation, and that this God is a revealing God who uses broken, weak, feeble people. This is the only type of hope that walks in humility. The hope that knows God's got it and I can act. God's got it. God's going to take care of this. Daniel, in a certain sense, right, my God does not need counselors. He reveals all knowledge and all history. I'm not, he's special, I'm not. Daniel's walking in the sense of like, okay, God's got this. He's got me under his eye. He's got the situation under control, but he still speaks and acts without any sense of like being timid, without being, you know, shaken at the knees, without any sense of being afraid. I just want to make a, this is more of a comment, just a kind of general, I've observed this in myself and I want to just kind of speak to it because I feel like this could be a moment to say something about this, how we engage with each other. I've noticed that I do this and I noticed that it happens a good bit. There can be a sense in which we, when we're talking to each other, we can kind of be like, look, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to, I don't want to cause any stumbling or process, or I don't want to offend you. I'm not trying to, trying to couching whatever statements we're going to say. 
and then after a long <laughs> statement of couching terms, then we say what we're trying to say, whatever the opinion is. I do this all the time. I know some of us do this as well. Daniel is in a certain sense kind of saying to us, you know what, just speak the truth. Just speak whatever you see is going on. Don't get so caught up as to whether somebody's going to judge you or not and what you're going to say. Just, just say what you're trying to say. Just engage freely in a conversation and just speak to it. There's a humility in just being able to say, you know what, this is what I think. I really don't care if I get judged for it or not. This is what I'm thinking. And uh, if I do get judged, well, I'm under the watchful eye of God who cares about me and knows me. He's going to forgive me for being an idiot if that's what I am. Like, Daniel is not too worried about how he's going to couch this for the king, right? There's a certain sense I just want us to, just to, an encouragement. Let's just drop the couching of, of how we say things and then just freely engage with each other. That's what Daniel does. Just a call for us to do that. Daniel, rather than getting a fat head, he has a humble heart. And that's how he engages with, with Nebuchadnezzar and seeing the meaning of all these things. Humility requires that we enjoy our limits. Daniel knows the limits of his skill and wisdom. He knows the limits of how he engaged situation. But he's not too offended or process. He's not just fluffed about that. You see this in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 12, where Paul talks about um, my... But he said to me, Paul prays for this weakness to be removed from him. Daniel could have done the same thing. God, I pray for you to remove this weakness from me of not knowing all mysteries. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, weaknesses are actually a gift. Daniel is gifted to be able to not know all things, and yet he must go to God who reveals all things. That requires that Daniel has humility. What are the areas of weakness that just kind of frustrate you because it just holds you back in your life? I'll tell you, one for me. Uh, this is a totally just a physical thing for me. I was born with bilateral club feet. I don't know if you know what that means. I know everybody's like looking at my shoes and all that stuff. Uh, so bilateral club feet is where both, when I was born, both my feet were curved up and in. For that, that means that for my entire life, it has been incre incredibly painful for me to do any running or lots of walking. Uh, unfortunately, some of our friends recently got to experience how like incredibly like miserable I can be when I've been like after a lot of walking and I'm not very happy with life. It's a, it's a limitation for me. I can't do a lot of walking. I can't do a lot of running or hardly any running. But it is something that makes me dependent upon God. It is something that holds me back for being all that I want to be because maybe all that I want to be is not what I should be. Humility says my weakness is something that makes me cast myself on God and his power to be successful in the situation. And that does not mean that I get to, success does not look like overcoming the weakness. Success looks like the humble dependence on a God who's gonna show up. That's the difference, right? I can humbly depend on this, on, you know, to, to get through this so that then I'm shown to be stronger on the other side of this. Or, like Daniel, humility can just simply be, God's going to show up. I don't have anything to do with it. God's going to reveal himself, and he's going to be powerful. Weaknesses are a whole myriad of things. We may be weak to find the justice that we long for, right? Whatever the situation is in your life, legal system, whatever that's tied up in the courts, weakness may be that we long to find justice that is so elusive 
we may be weak to find the provision for just the merely like daily food that we need to sustain us. We may be weak to find clear and sustained faith in Christ. We may have weak faith. That's okay. Because it's not about you getting strong faith. It's about Christ being strong as the anchor of your faith, even as weak as it is. We may have weak minds to understand his truth. We may have weak emotions and we find him to be the rock and the storm. We may have weak bodies that long for the resurrection. This world is hell-bent on removing our dependence on God, every aspect of it, from what's the weather (laughs) to try this new physical regimen. It is all hell-bent on making sure that you are not a dependent, weak person. And here is the true reality of the world. You are weak, you're going to die, and God is the one whose power is the only kingdom that will sustain you. Not the medical kingdom, not the political kingdom, only God himself. So, with that said, let's turn to verse 31 to 49 and finish this passage out and see God's kingdom come out, bursting out of this passage. You guys cool with that? All right. I know some of you are just been like, now we're at the juicy part of the passage, all right? I promise you, it's going to be interesting, all right? So, verse 31 to 49, uh, uh, God's power sustains our hope, and that hope looks like hope with clarity. Here is when we're going to end verse 31 to 49, hope with clarity. So here's what happens, right? Daniel comes before the king, and he's like, here's what your dream was, right? You had a vision of a big, gigantic Statue of Liberty, right? He didn't say Statue of Liberty. That's not in the passage, but the idea is the same, right? Big statue guy, head gold, chest and arms silver, right? Midsection, bronze, legs, iron, uh, probably like, you know, like shins to feet, uh, clay and iron mixed together. That's what you saw. And then as though out of nowhere, this rock is cut out of a mountain, thrown at the statue. The statue at its feet bursts apart. Everything else falls and crumbles. And almost as though he's referring to Psalm 1, is washed away like the chaff after you sweep up after doing a work job. But that rock stays there. And that rock grows to a whole mountain that uncovers the entire earth. So, if you guys want to understand exactly what that means, let me tell you. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, We're going to understand a little bit of that. But historically, here's how this passage has been understood. that, pa- that passage has been understood to refer to four kingdoms, right? It's been generally kind of historically just kind of said like, okay, those four kingdoms are probably Babylon uh, because it says in the passage, he says, king, you're the head, you're the gold, right? <laughs> he calls them out. You're the king of Babylon. The, uh, the kingdoms, so then what, they, what happens generally in, uh, in interpreting this, it's saying like, well, what are the major kingdoms that follow after this? So is it, it's generally Babylon, Medea, Persia, and Greece, or it could be something like, Babylon, Medo-Persia, so it's kind of like, well, we'll just kind of group these two big semi, semi-powerful groups into one group, Greece and Rome, and then it's kind of like, are the toes like the ten provinces of Rome? Like, that's kind of how this is interpreted. All right. I just want to say, I'm not so sure that that's really the point of the passage. Here's the main reason. He says, first of all, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head. Not your kingdom, you are the head. So you could read this to be four sequential kings with a king that, bro- that you know, 
gets burst apart at the end. I'm just not so sure that it's really important to the passage to, to, to locate the specifics and history of what those, refer, those kingdoms are because the passage doesn't give us much, right? I'm not even sure I understand ancient history enough. I'm not even sure that any scholar can understand history enough to be able to say it's definitely these four. The passage doesn't give us that indication. The passage just seems to primarily focus on their power, and that's what we see. So Ian Duguid, he was my Old Testament professor. The one thing that remains constant about these various kingdoms is their lust for power and their desire to dominate the entire world, right? That's definitely what you see here in this passage, isn't it? Right? You see that the iron, specifically the one of iron, is dominant and it crushes all other kingdoms. So the more important aspect of this, rather than this being about a kingdom and figuring out who these four different kingdoms are, the more important aspect comes to us in verse 34. As you look, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image in its feet of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. And then it goes on to say, the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces, and became like chaff. Remember Psalm 1, that was blown away in the summer threshing floor. A stone was cut out by no human hand. This is speaking generally a power solely for God himself. This is clearly God in this picture. God is the one, right? No human hand. Animals ain't cutting out no uh, stone from a mountain. God's hand is cutting out this rock. It is solely the power of God that will destroy all the human kingdoms, right? That's just generally what the passage is, is, the vision is about, right? God's power versus all human power, right? We can agree on that, but it is cut out by no human hand. St. Christostom um, from the ancient church, uh, a big-time preacher from the tw- second and third century, he would say that this refers to the virgin birth of Christ. This is, this is in, the power of, in the power of God to birth a baby from a virgin womb to then who, who is the Son of God is an indication that what's being viewed here is simply God's power in Jesus Christ. God's power in sending Jesus Christ. God's power to unleash a completely new way, a power that gives everything for others rather than consolidating power for themselves, right? The kingdom of God, the power of God is in giving himself rather than consolidating for himself. So you see here in Luke 20, can we throw that up here? I just want to make this real crystal clear because Jesus himself identifies with this. So Luke 20, he is preaching. He says, um, Jesus is quoting this. He will come and destroy those tenants. All right, so, sorry, let me back up here. It's on the back end of a parable. I, for, I forgot about this part. It's in my notes. I forgot to say. Jesus tells a parable of uh, a vineyard owner who owns a vineyard. He sends people to go work the vineyard. He wants to go get his wine from the vineyard. What does O mean? He sends his, his servants to go get it. The vineyard workers, they beat up, kill, and destroy all those workers. And then he sends his son to go and get the, the, the wine saying the, what, he owed, what they're owed, saying, surely they won't kill my son. Well, they do kill his son. And this is what the vineyard owner does at the end of Jesus' parable. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Then they, uh, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked, them, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. 
When it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Let's leave that out there for a second. Jesus is taking all of these situations of stones and parables and all this stuff, and just as only Jesus can do, consolidates them into one mystery gospel punch. He is looking at them and saying, I'm telling you this parable about God sending prophets and then me, and you're going to kill everybody, and you're going to be surprised when God shows up and uses the one that you destroyed to be your judge and savior. Quotes Psalm 18. This is Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then here we have Daniel verse, chapter 2, verse 44 to 45. And just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will be after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Jesus quotes, in effect, Daniel chapter 2, right here, that the stone will come and destroy the kingdoms that have rejected him. They will be broken to pieces, and everyone will be destroyed who does not bow to Jesus. That's the climactic end of Jesus' claim of the power of the kingdom of God. That's, he's, it's verbatim almost directly from Daniel chapter 2. Jesus is the rock, and in his upside-down kingdom power, it is his kingdom power that overtakes the world. Are we cool? Can I give like another five minutes to this and then we're, we can kind of end? I don't want to like, we're good? All right. I just want to speak to this because I've begun to see some of Jan- Daniel chapter 2, or Daniel, the book of Daniel in general, be used in relation to world events going on right now. Uh, this generally comes from the history of dispensational reading in this passage, and I'm not going to get into an eschatological battle. Um, I'm just going to say dispensational reading, which is a certain type of reading of, the, of specific uh, Old Testament and New Testament passages. I benefit a great deal from our dispensational brothers and sisters, so I'm not in any way being dismissive. When it comes to their eschatology, that's the end time stuff that we're talking about here, they read it in a way that says it must literally be only about what this passage says, and it cannot be an image of what's going to happen, right? So the way I read this, and generally saying from like I'm not trying to, like, one-up, but I'm just saying, like, generally, like, church history is just kind of read. This is like a comic book, right? There are big sort of pictures going on here, but if you get focused in on the details, you're going to lose the forest for the trees. What that ends up happening is that everybody ends up kind of coming to these passages and saying, look, these passages are now being fulfilled in our day in specific ways, right? And so they look at the pandemic, they look at the COVID-19 stuff, and they say, ah, see, here's Daniel. And I just want to say, we need to be on guard against this because the main focus of this passage is not to give us names and dates. Even with biblical categories, those can divert us from the clarity that this passage is offering us. This passage is and only is about that Jesus Christ reigns, he is the king, and his kingdom wins. Period. If you then try to add a coda and say, now, Trump uh, Palestine, Israel, COVID-19, whatever, the, whatever it is, you're going to be diverting the path away from what this passage is leading us towards. Again, in no way trying to be dismissive or, de- or uh, condescending about our dispensational brothers. I deeply respect them. I just think that this passage is not about what they would say it is. Ultimately, here's what this passage says. America the UK, 
any other global power today, right, the Russian bear, so to speak, they will all be footnotes in the annals of history. They will all be put as footnotes to the grand expansion and reign and rule of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which brings all people to his mountain of refuge because he walked up a mountain of judgment. All of those kingdoms would rather us be under the judge and rule of all their laws, and the law of Christ says that he gives himself for the good and blessing and life of others at his own expense. His own infinite love and mercy is poured out on his own mountain so that when we are drawn to him, we are drawn to a mountain of mercy and grace and compassion. He will reign over every sphere and institution and system in this world, which is why his kingdom will expand through the whole world. I'm not saying that his kingdom will make everything perfect this side of his return. His kingdom, the gospel power of his life and death and resurrection, living in his people, does inject itself into every area of our life. Academic, blue collar, everywhere in between, home, sphere, single life, married life, everybody is called to this mountain of refuge to experience his all-consuming, all-life-giving, all-merciful power. This kingdom lasts. Our kingdoms, our names, our America will not. Let me just make a quick note here. Please vote. (laughs) I'm not saying don't vote. All I'm saying is that we vote in the understanding that we are citizens of a kingdom of power that gives itself for others, even if the if our giving for others means they are voting away our rights. If they vote away our rights, I will just remind you that currently I read an article this week that in Iran, there are close to around a million Christians right now. I would say that Iran, uh, Iran, how do you pronounce it? Iran? What do I know? Iran is not the most uh, religious freedom-oriented place in the world. There's about 82 million people in the country. There are, at current estimates, around 1 million Christians in Iran which means one in 80 people in a non-religious freedom, in a non-Christian country, has one million people that belong to this mountain that will consume the whole earth. I'm not too concerned about what November brings because this mountain of Christ's kingdom wins, period. Let's end. This passage calls us in hope to hope in the power of God's kingdoms. There are no sides of history. There is only the king who rules and reveals himself in history. In him we join the voices, the history of voices coming around him, praising him, enjoying him, and receiving his mercy to us. Not because we've earned it or because we're special, but we receive it and we praise his name, we receive his grace knowing his power to fill our hope that we know the person of history himself, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this passage, there's a lot to unpack, and we've walked through a lot. I pray that you would be with us as we continue to worship you this morning. Be with us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.